Welcome to the Queer Arabs Podcast. This is Alia. This is Nadia. And Ellie. And we are here with a guest we've wanted to have on for a while. Um, you've been on like... You've seen snippets, snippets yeah. of her. Yeah. You've yeah. had previews of her. So can you introduce <laughs> yourself? Sure. Hi, I'm Sivan Bakat. Uh, I use she or they pronouns. And yeah, I've been on like little snippets of different episodes, but it's exciting to actually sit and talk with you all. I... I'm so many things, you know, <laughs> one sentence descriptions are so funny. I'm, I'm a theater director, I'm a community organizer, I'm a cultural worker, I'm an educator, you know, those are some things about me. I'm an Iraqi Jew, um, mixed Iraqi Jewish and white Ashkenazi Jewish, um, and I live in Brooklyn. Awesome. Cool. So among all those things, uh, what have you been working on recently? Theater, theater shut down, yeah. <laughs> as we know. Um, you know, but identity didn't, and community didn't, and I think learning how to translate some of the community building work that I was doing in New York um, to Zoom has actually been really beautiful in many ways. Because like my community of Iraqi Jews has expanded, my community of Arab Jews has expanded, my community of queer Arabs and Middle Eastern people has expanded. Um, just as it's become like we're on the internet, so anyone anywhere can be a part of it. So some of the things I've been doing, um, you know, I've directed a couple of different projects on Zoom. I directed Rafael Khouri's uh, hey. She Me, yeah, yes. which now you worked on with uh, the Criminal Queerness Festival and the National Queer Theater in the spring. Um, and I worked on a play by Michael Zalta, who recently had a uh, segment <laughs> Episode, on the yeah. podcast. And I've done a couple of other, I'm upcoming, I'm doing a this theater in San Francisco called Cutting Ball asked me to do a, um, they're doing an Expanding the Canons project and they invited me to uh, work on a play that I would consider sort of like a Middle Eastern classic. So I'm working on um, an Egyptian play from the 1960s there that I'm really, really excited about. And like, I think there's going to be really beautiful queer aspects to explore in that project. So there's been like bits and pieces of theater, but outside of sort of like traditional theater models, I've also been doing a lot of community work and teaching different kinds of workshops. Um, I teach a lot of ancestral storytelling and ancestral remembrance workshops um, for queer people, for queer Middle Eastern people. And I also teach at a Torah Academy for Jews of Color that was based out of New York, but now that we're digital, um, I have been teaching Jews of color from across the United States, and I even have students from other countries sometimes joining oh, on Zoom. It's so like the time cool. zones are kind of wild and delightful. Um, yeah. So I've been teaching steadily there as well and working on a bunch of different digital media projects and yeah, yeah. finding a lot of joy in the different ways that we can build community and expand our community uh, now that we're in this digital space, mm -hmm. but also, you know, right. grieving the loss of a lot of in-person time and the loss of kind of the holiness of being able to share performance and breath in in the room together so yeah. you know yeah waiting waiting for the return of that holy space <laughs> what does the um ancestral telling workshop actually entail though like what, yeah what happens well you know it depends who it's for and like what the framework is but something that is really significant to me so you know, I'm an Iraqi Jew and like many histories that are affected by migration and displacement and colonialism or Zionism, right? Like many of these histories that have been touched, like there's a lot of loss and fragmentation in my own history, particularly in like knowledge and access and language and all of these pieces of it that I think many, many immigrant 
experiences like share um, and many experiences, particularly immigrant experiences that have been touched by colonialism, which so, so many have. So um, something I'm really interested in is like how we connect with and commune with our ancestors and these ancestral histories. And for me, um, like my grandmother is this extraordinary figure um, and mentor and guide for me. And so for me, it's really rooted in my connection with my grandmother, um, Violette Batat, who uh, actually had like a very famous radio show in Arabic based out of Jerusalem after she came from Baghdad to Jerusalem. And, um, and so like being in conversation with her and her work uh, has been so much of, of what's uh, guided me and moved me through so much of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the ways that, you know, we can be in conversation with those histories is to be in conversation with our ancestors. But I think of ancestors in a really like wide definition. Like I think of ancestors as like any figure who has offered us wisdom and guidance in any way. Like it doesn't have to be blood. It doesn't have to be lineage. I had someone in a workshop once who even was like a tree that I grew up beside as an ancestor of mine. Like I really believe in ancestors can be so many different forms. And like, there are a lot of folks in my communities who I, who I lead these workshops with who are not necessarily connected to like blood lineages because of histories of slavery or histories of colonialism or all these different histories of, of displacement. And so, you know, an ancestor can be an author whose, whose words shaped you. An ancestor can be someone, you know, a, a figurehead that whose like existence and visibility in the world, like, shaped you. I I just think of ancestors as those who have shaped and guided us um, in different ways, not necessarily even people. Um, Of course, some people bring in, like myself, I bring in my grandmother so often within that. Um, So those storytelling workshops will often look like sort of mapping our collective geographies. Like what are the geographies our stories have touched and continue to touch? That's a question I'll ask often. Like what are the places your story has touched touched down in some way um and also like what are you know what are objects that carry that memory or that carry that wisdom what are objects that that teach us and that guide us that offer us protection what are objects that are in your space or in your imagination (laughs) that are part of your histories um and we'll often like share stories in journals or in one-on-one or in audio notes or in music or however people want to share those stories so it looks a lot of different ways um but something that's been really particularly special for me has been leading them for queer communities. Um, Because I also think as queer people, like how we're in touch with ancestors is something I'm really tender and interested in. Um, I say tender because I think it's it's hard sometimes to think about like, is the way that I'm living my life the way, the quote unquote way my ancestors would have been excited for? I don't know, you know, I don't know that there are things about, you know, my queerness in the world that my grandmother would have necessarily understood. And yet like me being in my truth, I like to believe that she would would be thrilled and would be delighted. And so I think also as queer people like who have experienced these, you know, histories of, or experiences of, of fragmentation within our families, what does it mean to be like in, in conversation with ancestors who like, it's not necessarily, you know, a positive or a negative, like these are our histories mm-hmm. and what does it mean to be in conversation with them? We can also choose a history that we want to be in positive conversation with, like an author that has shaped us, or we can choose a history that is not necessarily in positive conversation for us. But as queer people, what does it mean to like root in who we are and where we currently are and where our stories have journeyed from is yeah. also a way I'm actually in touch with my queerness. Like I feel really, um, it feels really special to me. I, I, you know, like I have this, you know, I have this like a uh, cabinet in my bedroom where I like keep objects that are like objects I would consider 
like queer objects, objects that carry queerness for me, right? I'll like leave it at that, like queer, <laughs> queer objects. Yeah. And also like some of my like sacred objects are also mm-hmm. there, like other sacred objects. And like, I keep them in the same place and they exist in the same world for me. Like my queerness is always rubbing up against my my selfhood and my selfhood is like in my fullness. So how do I bring that fullness into where I am? And so those are, that's what the workshops are sort of about, like being in ourselves and in our fullness and honoring those lineages, however we think of them. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think about that sometimes with, um, the, regarding queerness and I, I'm like, okay, what would my grandma, what, you know, if she knew, what would she think and all that stuff. But then I'm like, okay, let's say there is nothing after death I don't know at least like the part of her that is me like the part of me that's her I should say the part of me that's her like at least that part understands um so I've I've had those thoughts before too and I'm like well at least there's like a part of that person that's like now me who does understand and that's that's always kind of nice to um to just kind of articulate to myself i've always felt pretty disconnected from sort of my queer elders because well there's not a lot of intergenerational contact in queer communities until recently unless you work in like activist spaces so like the first queer elders i have like interacted with were like some radio show hosts was for like for a queer radio show where they were much older than me and were telling me all these experiences from like the 40s 50s and 60s which was like whoa you know and a lot of this stuff was like local history that was barely documented outside of like one or two historical archives or museums which was really interesting but I also like ran into this one older lesbian woman who asked me out simply because we were both out queer Arabs and we met on the dating site and I'll, but the, the whole idea is like, whoa, we never ran into like somebody like this before. So we had this whole conversation and I got to know her family history, but it's like, these experiences are so rare, you know, cause like I'm the only queer person that's connected in my family to my family. So like, what is the queer history of that? I don't know. And it's especially weird just because I have all these stories from like old Lebanon before the civil war and all that stuff, but I have nothing that's queer related in there at all. So just hearing any sort of queer history, like is always fascinating, especially outside of like the big historical high points, the more personal stuff seems Mm -hmm. like the more personal, more intimate stuff seems so much cooler to me, even though Mm -hmm. like it's less world chattering to be honest yeah and you know there's there it, it probably exists and you just like don't have access to it um whatever happened in the past yeah yeah well it's it's interesting like i you know there's this story of my grandmother left iraq in in 1951 and like many many years later in like the 80s she like looked up her best friend from her school in the united states and they like met and had coffee and so i like started thinking so deeply about this friendship that like has crossed all of these borders and like they were both in like a british christian school in baghdad like right colonialism schooling all these things they were like alliance french schools they're like british christian (laughs) schools they're all these things um and so like you know, and, and so there were like people of many religions at these schools and this woman was happened happened to be Muslim. And um, and I think like thinking about these friendships and like, what does it mean to reconnect with this like um, woman from her, you know, teenagehood 40 years later? And like, what are these connections? And, and so I started actually writing a play sort of imagining that friendship of like between these two, what I was 
positioning as like 16 year old girls um, in Iraq. And then like suddenly it was just like all of these queer undertones to this story. And I was like, it's true. Like, I don't know. I don't know about the queerness in my ancestry, you know, and I don't Mm -hmm. purport that that was like my grandmother was queer or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But just that there's like all of these um, questions of of ancestors and how we relate to these questions of of love and desire and presence in ourselves. And I'm constantly curious about it. And also, yeah, like really tender and vulnerable about it too, I think. Right. Like maybe your grandma wasn't queer, but someone at some point was. Yeah, definitely a fictional, it's definitely right. like a fictional play. You know, I'm making it up. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think something yeah. else I think about too in that regard on just like in, in the blood family sense of ancestry and people not necessarily being able to understand or approve of how I'm living my life is just that people understand what they can from their context. Um, So I don't always look to like a one-to-one, like would this person having lived the life that they live in the context that they have lived and learned what they did approve of what I'm doing now, but just, I don't know. I I often look at just like other themes of gender nonconformity or nonconformity in general that I see as a predecessor to my life like I don't I I, like my mom for instance I feel like just pushed back on so many expectations of her as a woman um as I'm sure did people in previous generations um and being able to see that as linked and a predecessor to how I am existing and living my life now even if taken out of context plopped into um today there wouldn't be like a one-to-one approval. It's all contextual. Yeah. Like sometimes I think that people, like people understand what they're able to. Yeah. And like if they were growing up like your contemporary, maybe the person that they are, maybe they would understand. Yeah. Totally. I think, I think about that with my, my family too. Cause actually like my grandparents lived apart from each other for a long time. Like my grandfather moved to the United States in the seventies with my father and all of that family and my grandmother was like, no, I have my radio show here. I'm staying in Jerusalem. Like yeah, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, she was kind of like, I, I did a bunch of interviews with people who are still part of that um, radio station. And they were like, oh yeah, she was a superstar. Like she wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. She was never going to stop. Her show was called Mujalat Ilustra, which is like the family magazine. And it was like a women's radio show about like women's health issues and, um, you know, bodies and child rearing and, menstruation and pregnancy and sex and all these things that she was like talking about in the 70s yeah. in Arabic oh, on the yeah. radio and yeah like that's kind of queer like it's not queer it's, queer but yeah, it's like kind of exactly. it's, it's kind of queer yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> and like she didn't she like lived alone woman alone she's married yeah. but she like lived alone in Jerusalem <laughs> like she, you know there's queer aspects to the yeah. story that I think are like as we think about expansive definitions of gender and queerness like I sort of invite and call in in my in my life <laughs> yeah. and in my work um totally. Yeah, the place I think it's it's really sticky is also around like, I guess politics is not quite the right word, but like around also identifying as an Arab person and sort of the the sort of complexities of Iraqi Jewish identity in the wake of, you know, 1948 and in the wake of Zionism mm-hmm. and how those histories have shaped so many Jewish identities from the Middle East and North Africa and sort of like 
this anti this like erasure of arabness for so many of those arab communities because of xenophobia because of anti-arabness because of zionism because of racism and i think reclaiming reclaiming my understanding of myself as an arab has also mm -hmm. been like complex in relationship to that history because yeah. you know many many iraqi jews who like arrived in the newly established state of israel as well as like jews from morocco and syria and different you know places in the middle east and north africa like a lot of those communities were told like stop speaking Arabic to your children, you know, um, mm. don't pass on this culture. And my grandmother, like being the strong figurehead she, woman she was, she, yeah. she passed Arabic to all her kids. It was like very, very important to her that all her children would speak Arabic. And when I was like, even a little girl, I was the first granddaughter out of, after like, <laughs> like 20 male cousins on my Iraqi <laughs> side. Damn. And I was like born and I was like the girl, you know, finally, yeah. which is complicated for me in all these other ways anyway now. But, um, you know, and she, she, I was the only one she tried to teach Arabic to. So like my first four years of life, she would like, she was teaching me Arabic. She was flash, you know, with flashcards. And, um, and then she passed away when I was five and no one, no one kept teaching me Arabic. And now in the last three, four years, I've been studying Arabic, you know, on my own. And it's like, it's such, <laughs> I joke sometimes that like, I have spent more time writing about how it feels to study Arabic than actually studying Arabic. Oh, we talked about that. <laughs> no, I, I did the, I did something really similar. Like I was like, I, I also had like a lot of like, written pieces about how I was shitty at Arabic and then I was like wait people are gonna be like if this bitch has enough time to write about why they're bad at Arabic don't they have enough time to just like improve um yeah. so then I was like okay that's fair I'm just gonna like spend some time improving yeah, <laughs> yeah, talked about that. yeah. I like laugh with my I have an amazing Arabic teacher now and I like laugh with her sometimes about how I've like I wrote a poem this week about my Arabic homework but I didn't do it like <laughs> Anyway, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm working on it. I'm steadily working on it. And it does feel really, really holy to like reclaim Arabic yeah, yeah. And, and reconnect to Arabic and, and find the ways and, and doors it opens for me as I as I connect to it. Um, you know, but I've like, there's a lot of harshness. I was past Hebrew, like I was past Hebrew and now I teach yeah. Hebrew to Jews of color, which is so beautiful. And also like, I have a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pain there that I was past a language that my family only spoke for one generation. And for 1500 years before mm -hmm. we spoke, we spoke Arabic and, yeah. um, there's a big loss in that, you know, and like Judeo Arabic in general and like Iraqi Arabic, Iraqi Jewish Arabic, yeah. like those are, those languages are starting to to fade out of, of, of our tongues. Like there aren't many mouths that remember, remember those dialects. So, you yeah. know, there's a lot of loss there. The dialects, there's the a lot specificity of thing is tough though. Cause like, I don't know where you could go to learn like Judeo-Iraqi. Yeah. Well, there is a Facebook group. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. There's a face, there is a Facebook okay. group with something like 70,000 Jewish Iraqis. Oh, wow. in it. Cool. Um, and it's called it's called in Hebrew preserving the Iraqi dialect in Hebrew. And most of it is okay. like folks who are currently living in Israel, Palestine, and who speak, you know, who speak Iraqi Arabic. So it's like a, a whole generation Iraqi Jewish Arabic. So it's like a whole generation. It's like mostly like the group is mostly like people 60 and above. And it's like a it's like a kind of wild part of the corner of the internet. Like it's a very, very, very active community. There's like dozens of posts a day. People will ask, like, how do you say this in Iraqi Jewish? And then like 70 people will comment the same word. You know, <laughs> like it's like it really it's really, drills it into wow. really, you know, so like I do have a resource for it, but it's also like, you know, and there's also like people will post recipes and videos of food so there are places and, and sort of sites where these things are being reclaimed and I have like or cool. sort of remembered and archived and I have you know I have a friend in Boston Annabelle Rabi who has this um, Iraqi Jewish pop-up kitchen called the Wafi kitchen which is an amazing amazing project and Annabelle just totally rocks and is like preserving all of these a lot of these recipes and bringing forth food histories and food stories and food cultures and 
my brother's a musician and he plays a lot of Iraqi Jewish music and studies Iraqi mm. Jewish museum. And so like there is, there is work and, and energy and desire towards the sort of um, remembrance and archiving of these histories. But it's also like, we're us in our contemporary experience as like diaspora kids, as kids mm. born in the United States, as queer people, you know, or, or whatever we are. And um, I think like understanding how to relate to also that like building of an archive of this history it's really interesting for me it like grounds it grounds a lot in objects for me um but for each person it's different yeah what are some objects that you connect to Hmm. that's an interesting question well I was in right before the pandemic started I had this amazing opportunity to go to Morocco and Tunisia with two friends and while we were there um we went to this Jewish cemetery in Fez in Morocco and we like came upon this museum of sorts run by this Moroccan Jewish man who's in his 80s now who lives in in Fez and, and never left when sort of the like Moroccan Jewish community left Morocco um, in mostly the 50s. He just he just didn't leave. He stayed and it seems like he sort of gathered up as many things like objects as he could <laughs> from the community and just sort of piled them into this big room that was a formerly a synagogue and he like we like opened the doors of this like dusty doors of this enormous um synagogue and walked in and it was just full of stuff like photos of ancestors photo albums old frying pans a torah you know like uh like sidurim prayer books like all of these sacred like ritual objects but also like empty wine bottles and you know little like trinkets from different Mm -hmm. families and like just all bicycles like typewriters telephones just like all of this stuff from jewish morocco from like the moroccan jewish community and i just like stood in this room and i and i wept like i just wept because i was like is there a room like this in baghdad like is there a room where these objects that like didn't get taken with you know a community leaves a place a lot of stuff gets left behind so I do a lot of dreaming about these objects, but in my own life, like I have a little, um, I have a little, like recently I I mentioned to my dad that I felt like I needed some protection from the evil eye. I was like, I'm feeling like I need a little bit of like protection right now in my life. And he was like, oh, take the, take the crib pin. And he gave me this little like pin that had been on my crib when I was a baby that has like three, you know, hamsas on it. And he was like, oh yeah, this, this hung on your crib when you were a baby to protect you from the evil eye. And he like gave it to me to hold on to while I need like a little extra protection. And, you know, recently I was talking to a, another Jewish Iraqi friend and I like held up this object and she was like, I have the same one. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, no way. Yeah, I was oh. like, really? She was like, I have the same exact crib pin. I think it's from Iraq. And I was like, wow, I guess this is one of the objects that wow. that came along that like made it. Um, so that's something that's really, really sacred to me. My brother has one of my grandmother's earliest Arabic English dictionaries from like the 1950s. Oh, that's I think, um, which is really treasure. Wild. Yeah, it's like it's high, you know, it's like really formal dictionary, um, but it's it's <laughs> a treasure. Yeah, it has all like has a lot of her notes in it too. Um, oh, that's cool! Some, wow, there's yeah. some holy objects. Yeah, there's yeah. Some... I mean, I, I'm sure that was just so powerful to see like all these objects when you were in Morocco, like. Mm-hmm in a context that made sense because I mean I'm thinking about like I don't know I think it was at the Vatican and in this museum and there was this single chess piece among unrelated stuff and it just said chess piece from Iraq and it's just Mm. so it's disheartening to see like all these amazing historic objects just like completely taken out of context um not given the stories that they deserve placed in a just completely different society like for tourists who will never understand what is sacred about the object or like what it means and so yeah that's it like it's sad how rare it is like 
the the room that you got to stand in like how rare that is yeah it's also it felt really different than other like more curated tourist sites of jewish history in morocco you know it felt like yeah. this is a person who just gathered all he could while his community around him seemed to just leave you know and it just felt really really different texturally very very different from like the jewish museum in casablanca or yeah. you know jewish jewish sort of like tourist sites um where the objects are like behind glass it's more formal uh, yeah yeah, more formal. This just it just felt like, just like someone yeah. gathering up all these pieces of fragments of, of yeah. his world and, and holding on to them. And you know, so much gets lost when a people leaves a place <laughs> for so many totally. reasons. And yeah. you know Plus I imagine it was really cool just to see a space that was like well, yes, it was curated by this man, but it was like not perfect air quotes professionally curated curated like you would never see like an empty wine bottle in a the museum that you wouldn't see or like mm -hmm. just some typewriters that somebody may have used that you know that's not famous that's just it's just a typewriter but it was used and it was in somebody's home and yeah, I don't it's know. not built to fit someone's narrative like a preconceived narrative of history it's just like this was stuff from people living life people just yeah, yeah going through life doing their he thing yeah he like couldn't find the keys. It's <laughs> like, a nice like touch. Twenty minutes to find the keys. Like it wasn't. It wasn't like. <laughs> it was just the whole experience. Yeah. I'm like, I don't speak French, and my like little mm -hmm. bit of Palestinian Arabic didn't go so far <laughs> in, in Morocco. Yeah. And like you know, I, you know, and we were just like, can we go in? He was like, I don't know where the keys are, and we were like, okay. <laughs> like, it was just the whole yeah. experience was kind of beautiful and painful. Yeah, that's really profound. You kind of mentioned some of the different communities you've been involved in, uh, whether for uh, Swana people in general, Swana Jews, Jews of color, um, queer people. I guess what's been your process of finding and coming into these different communities? And if it helps, like, I don't necessarily mean you can go on an abstract level, but also just like, like finding people whenever you like move to yeah. a city and you're like, where are my people? How do I find them? Yeah. Um, that's always kind of just like a process that no one really lays out for you. Um, yeah, so I'm just kind of curious question. how you found your way into these different circles. Yeah, I mean, I think I found my way, like I didn't, I didn't know that there were other queer Arab Jews. I just like didn't know <laughs> yeah. that we existed until I suddenly met a whole bunch of them. I went to a I went to a JVP conference for and there was like a meetup day for Jews of color, Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews. Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews is like, you know, this complex histories of many, many different peoples within that sort of terminology, but that's like often what the communities will use, like JOXM or J-O-C-I-S-M or different uh, different terms to kind of like create, name name these communities in different ways. But I went to like a meetup day for Jews of color, Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews before a JVP conference in 2017, maybe. And I wasn't planning to go. I was like way too nervous. I hadn't really been involved in JVP much. I was like still working through my own relationship to Zionism and questions of my politics and felt like JVP might be a good space for me, but I didn't quite, I wasn't feeling quite brave enough yet, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but a friend was like, hey, Sivan, like I've heard you, a friend who organizes with JVP was like, I've heard you talk about like being Iraqi and not really like having space to explore that part of your identity. Like they're doing this day that's just for Jews of color, Sephardi Mizrahi Jews, maybe you would want to go. And I went and I met other queer, Ira specifically Iraqi Jews, but also like queer Arab Jews and, and Swana Jews um, and Jews of color who had like radical politics around, you know, Israel, Palestine, Zionism, um, and just was like, whoa, you exist? <laughs> like what? I, you know, the only other Iraqi Jews I had really ever met were like my family or like a couple of, you know, 
relatives. You know, it's funny. I like remember I went to prom in high school with a with a guy who like I told my dad his last name. My dad like repeated his last name back with like a different accent was like, that's an Iraqi last name. And I was like, really? <laughs> Like, I didn't know that. Like, so I found, I found a few Iraqi Jews over the course of my like upbringing in the U S but like, for the wait, most- wait, let's just stop for a second. Your prom date was also an Iraqi Jew. Like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I didn't know that, you know? And also like, I didn't, um, like I was queer, but didn't really like ha- know it at the yeah. time or have language. So like, I just invited like a cis guy who I was friends with. Cause I like, was like, I want to go to prom with someone I feel like safe and comfortable yeah. with, but I wasn't that close with him. Like, and whatever, you know, high school is a whole story of like experiences of figuring out who the hell you are in this world. Um, but like, I didn't even know he was an Iraqi Jew. He was just right, like, but what of, are the odds? Like, but what are the odds, right? Or exactly what are the odds? A hundred percent. You know what I mean? Like one or the other. But like, I remember my dad being like that last name, that's an Iraqi Jewish last name. And me being like, I don't know, dad, I don't really care. Like, blah, blah, blah. And now, of course, in retrospect, I'm like, I find out someone's Iraqi and I'm like, oh my God, we have so much to talk about. But you know, it, it's like, I didn't really have, I grew up in a pretty white, I grew up in a pretty Jewish area outside of New Haven, Connecticut, but it was a pretty white Jewish area. Like mm-hmm. most of the Jews that I knew were were white Ashkenazi Jews. And I went to like a Jewish day school where the history I was taught about Judaism was like Eastern European Ashkenazi Jewish history and the Holocaust. And like, those are really important histories to know. And also like my mom's side um, before, like, I think I'm like fourth generation Brooklyn on my mom's side. So it's like deep, deep old school white Ashkenazi Jewish Brooklyn roots on that side. But like before then, before then Poland and Russia. And so like I am half Ashkenazi. That is part of my history. And my grandparents on that side came over to the United States way before the Holocaust. So actually like none of my ancestors were my like immediate ancestors were in Eastern Europe during the Holocaust. And I think like I was taught that this is my history. And in in many ways it is like, you know, Jews everywhere in the world who lived during the time of the Holocaust were touched by the Holocaust. There's no question like Jews in the Middle East and in North Africa were touched by it too. There's no question, right? Like Nazism and Nazi influence in in Iraq was substantial, like quite substantial. And also like the histories I was taught about the camps, like weren't ones that my ancestors had lived. And, you know, I would like learn about these histories and that these are who the Jews are. And then my like grandfather would pick me up like shouting Arabic at me from across the parking lot, you know, and we'd go home and like be listening to Uncle Tum. And I was like, this is not the history that I'm like, I don't understand who I am. Um, It's so weirdly disconnected. You know, it's like, yeah, this is, the history I'm taught, but because yeah. you're just so weirdly disconnected from it, it just doesn't seem, it seems a little unreal, you know, like, totally. but I feel like this is also like Gaspro kid experience, you know, number 45, just because we all grew up in this, in these white, well, majority white environments, usually where it's just like, we get taught a history that we are not a part of. Thank you all so much for listening. That was part one of a two part episode with Sivan. Although stick around till after the outro music to hear a little bit more. Okay, we're recording again. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, wait. Yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> one thing, yeah, one thing I did not tell you about yet is that I I sort of like realized that I was queer and that I was Arab on the same day, basically. Wait, wait, wait. wait. How walk did that us, happen? Walk us through this. <laughs> I'll walk you through this. Story so, time.
okay, so queerness, right? It's messy. Like for a long time, I was like, no, no, no. I just like that person specifically. That doesn't make me queer. And then again, I was like, I just like that person specifically. That doesn't make me queer. And then I was like, okay, strike three. I like that person specifically, but it's just these three individuals. It's not that I'm queer, you know, like for so long, I found all these ways to like be like, I'm not queer, I'm not queer. You know, and I think I did the same thing with being Arab, being like, well, I know that I grew up hearing Arabic. I know that I grew up with Arabic music. I know that my grandparents are from Iraq, but like we're Jews, <laughs> we're Jews. And like for so long, I was just constantly like, no, 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 we're not Arab. We're not Arab. Because that was like the thing I had internalized and been taught. Yeah. And like the same with my queerness. I had been like, <laughs> at all costs, don't be, don't be <laughs> queer, you know, yeah. not because of like, actually, my family's really, really open minded. My parents have been like, so supportive. I came out to them. They're like, really, really supportive and loving. It was just like society and internalized homophobia in the world totally, and all yeah. of this. Um, and I remember I was like sitting with a friend. We were like sitting. It was a summer I don't even remember what year it was, but it was the summertime. I was like visiting him at this like arts camp that he worked at. And we were like sitting on the, on the grid of a theater. We were like sitting on this like mesh grid all the way high up, like watching like a dance party of some of our friends below, like directly <laughs> underneath us with all the lights sitting up on this grid, having this like really intimate conversation about queerness. And he had been like out in the world as a gay man for a few years. And I was like, wow, I don't think I'm queer. I just had a crush on this person. And then we dated for a little while. And then I had a crush on this person. And we dated for a little while. And then I had a crush on this person. And, we and he was like, well and I was like it looks like a duck I was like I was like I was sitting with him and I was like and then we were talking about my Arabness and I was like I don't know like it's so confusing blah 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 and I remember saying something like what I'm gonna like put in my like professional bio Sivan Batat is a queer Arab artist and I like said it like with that kind of joke he, he looked at me and he was like um uh it makes sense like yeah he, like, like, <laughs> he was like he's like um Yes, was I think like, you are. You both. just wrote your bio right <laughs> now. It was like, <laughs> it was just like, well, Simon, like you just literally are both of those things. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it was like you, you just are both those things. You don't have to put it in your bio if you don't want. But like, I just remember being like, no, 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 like, and I think then we like spiraled into this whole conversation about how like identities are not necessarily constituted by experiences of oppression, right? Like some are, but like yeah. queerness isn't inherently in an identity that like mandates that I've been like violently oppressed for being queer in order to be queer like that doesn't actually yeah yeah, yeah. mean that I'm a queer person and, and Arab is the same way like all, both of those are not like identities that are those of of like inherently mean that I have to have been oppressed to have that identity and I think uh, that was okay. like a misunderstanding that I had about like well, I don't want to like claim all these things that I'm not or that I haven't like suffered for and yeah. like yeah. And, you know of course I've of course it's been hard to be queer and of course it's been hard to be Arab in all of these different ways that I just like wasn't really ready to face or wasn't really ready to admit or wasn't really ready to like reckon with um yeah. and I think like that night yeah. I just remember him being like Sivan but like I hate to could. break it to you. Like, you could put that in your oh. bio if you wanted. And I was like, no, it's not. I couldn't. And then I think that was the first moment where I was like, oh, oh shit. And then, and then your and future, and then you're like, <laughs> your future self is on the Queer Arabs podcast. <laughs> I know, it's so beautifully poetic. Oh, that's this arc. Yeah. Here we are. And yeah, I am a queer Arab. It's just the truth. I'm yeah. like also many other things. I'm also like yeah. a queer Jew and like a mixed Jew and yeah. a white Jew and all these other things. And just a person, not always a Jew. I don't know why I said that five <laughs> right. times. But like, you know, I think there's, um, yeah. yeah, it was it was a really, I have such a sweet memory of that night and how he just mm. like kind of held me in that in that moment as I was like, I could never. And he was like, well. 
you could. <laughs> um, Look, identities yeah. are just, you know, a bunch of similar idiots waving to each other saying same hat. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like totally. So that's that's the day I realized I was queer and Arab. I could probably like look through my photo album and figure out exactly which day it was. Can we um, use that photo for like the, the episode cover? Like if you find whatever photo from that day. Yeah. I'll have to ask him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like maybe, him. maybe for the second part. So you have time to ask. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was yeah. a it was a really sweet experience. And I just remember being like really held in, in that yeah. exploration. And I think it makes sense for me that those kind of came together. I think I just like yeah. up to that point in my life, I wasn't ready to like deal with identity. I wasn't really ready to like deal with these really profound questions. And I think it takes a certain amount of like maturity to even like yeah, be able to step it into things time. with yeah with bravery and pride and um kind of like look around at the world around you and what it's telling you you should be and right. are and be like you know yeah yeah i think it does i mean it's a cute story but i think it also just kind of shows there is something that's like you have to claim your identity for yourself like it's not just it, it's a little more than the sum of the parts like you can be looking at all the components that fit the definition of something um but until that's something you feel comfortable owning and um, claiming for yourself, you know, mm-hmm. that that's what makes it an identity versus just like a descriptor that someone else can tack on for you.